Welcome to Israel and You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Our host is Aaron David Free, president of Israel Team Advocates International. Aaron is an author, speaker, Bible teacher, and an advocate for Israel and the Jewish people on college campuses nationwide. This is Israel and You. Hey, welcome to Israel and You. And today I want to have a, a heart-to-heart conversation with you. And I want to talk about something that's, that's been on my heart for, for several months as I'm thinking about this. And I want to talk about where I see uh, American evangelicalism heading today. And I have some concerns that I want to share in just a minute. But to, to open up this, this time, I, I want to answer the question, what is salvation? And often we are looking at what we are saved from, which is a negative view of salvation. But we really should be thinking about what are we saved to? What are we saved to do? And theologian Mark Kinzer says this in an article, Final Destinies, and it's called Kesher Magazine. It was April 6th, 2008. And it's a paper that he wrote, a theological paper. And he says this, And what does it mean to be saved? Regent College professor John Stackhouse points to a misunderstanding of salvation that he sees as endemic in the evangelical world. In his gracious but penetrating response to the essays in this volume, Oxford professor John Webster wonders whether it is particularly North American evangelicals who need to be reminded that the Bible presents salvation as offering more than getting souls to heaven. My experience of teaching soteriology, which is the study of uh, salvation, uh, for several years at Regent College, an international graduate school of Christian studies whose students come from 35 countries on every continent except Antarctica, leads me to think that evangelicals far and wide also need their horizons expanded. Over and over, students have betrayed an understanding of salvation that amounted to a sort of spiritual individualism that is little better than Gnosticism. In fact, we could make an important start simply by teaching that salvation is not about Christians going to heaven. Salvation is about God redeeming the whole earth. Salvation is about heading for the new Jerusalem, not heaven, a garden city on earth, not the very abode of God and certainly not a bunch of pink clouds in the sky. And salvation is not only about what is to come, but also about what is ours to enjoy and foster here and now. According to Stackhouse and his colleagues, evangelicals too often view salvation in negative terms, what we are saved from, and as a forensic individualist, private and pietistic and spiritualized. In contrast, the authors argue that salvation should be viewed primarily as positive, transformative, communal, and relational. So um, that's a, a huge issue that we need to deal with is what does it really mean to be saved? In, in uh, the Gospels uh, and in Judaism, the highest law in Judaism is, is called pechuch nefesh. And pechuch means preserve and nefesh means life. It's the highest law in Judaism. And you remember the, the passage in the scriptures where Jesus heals uh, the man with a withered hand in the synagogue in Capernaum. And they challenged him, saying, hey, it's the Sabbath. You, you can't heal. You can't do work. And Jesus pulled up this law of Pekuach Nefesh, and he said, what is better on the Sabbath, to uh, take a life or to preserve a life? And so preserving of life is the most important law in Judaism. So Jesus broke seven sabbatical laws in order to heal. So there's, a, there's an old saying 
from the Jewish wisdom, it's he who saves one life saves the world entire, and he who destroys one life destroys the world entire. And this comes from um, what God says to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel. And he said to Cain, your brother's bloods cry out to me from the earth. Why did he say bloods in the plural? Because what Cain had done is he had destroyed all the future generations that would have come through Abel. And so taking of a life is as if you're destroying the entire world. And saving of a life is if you're saving the entire world. Another concept in uh, Jewish thought is tikkun olam which is repairing the world. So that's what we're saved to do, is to make the world a better place, to repair this world that we're living in. Jesus went about doing good, the Bible says. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full in the here and now. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus said, what must I do to inherit eternal life in Mark 10, 17? And, and Jesus gave him several commandments like, you know, don't commit adultery, uh, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, I've, I've kept these since I was a child. So Jesus said, one thing you lack, go sell all you have and give to the poor. And the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. So the good news of the gospel is not just about getting to heaven. It's about living to the fullest here and now. It's about loving God. It's about loving our neighbors. It's about feeding the poor. It's about loving the stranger. It's about loving the other, those people that maybe their lifestyle or their ideologies may differ from ours, but we love them anyway. Um, this is first century Judaism that Jesus taught that uh, we're saved to repair this world, to, to love God and love our neighbors as ourself, and to repair the broken world that we live in, to be salt uh, in this earth, to be light and in this earth. Salt is a salt is a preservative. So Christians are here on this planet to preserve this world. And preserving the life of the community that we live in is so important. And the scripture says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So we're sometimes so quick to judge others and condemn people for their sin. And I, I am concerned because I, I'm seeing uh, Christians today, mainly most for, for, from my perspective in the evangelical world, they've become so condemning of the outside world and they're pointing the finger of judgment. Uh, but people can be restored. And if not, then the Bible is of no effect. The scripture says, judge not lest ye be judged. Someone once said, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So every saint, there's been problems and mistakes and hiccups and sin and we've fallen in our past, but uh, we've been redeemed and forgiven. And every sinner has the same opportunity to be restored. Every sinner has a future. I remember several years ago, there was a young man and when I was a pastor, he was in our youth group, and he was always cutting up, causing problems, and it, it, it had gone on for a long time. So the youth pastor came, and he said, Pastor Free, there's nothing I can do. This, this kid is just driving the whole youth group crazy. So we met with the young man and his family and said, we're going to pull him out of the youth group for a month and just speak into his life. He was going to meet with the youth pastor. Well, the young man, he got upset and he left the youth group and went to another youth group at another church. And so in my mind, in my heart, I, I wrote him off. I thought to myself, 
This guy's going to end up in prison someday. He's so rebellious. And uh, the life lesson that I learned through all this is never underestimate the arm of God's mercy. Because about 10 years, 15 years later, I'm walking through the airport in Atlanta, Georgia, and I see this pilot walking towards me. I thought, I kind of recognize that guy. And he got up close to me, and it was this young man 15 years later, and he was a pilot for a major airline. And he said, Pastor Frey, I want to apologize for my behavior when I was a young man. I caused so many problems, but God got a hold of my life. And he changed me. I'm I'm married. I have two children. I'm serving the Lord. And I thought to myself, you know, what a dork I was for um, writing this young man off and saying, you know, God's arm of salvation can't reach him. So what I'm deeply concerned about today is Christianity in America is in many ways moving away from the good news of salvation and its call for us to feed the widow and the orphan, uh, to be salt and light in our generation, to care for the stranger. And instead, we're embracing a politically divisive ideology that puts America over serving Jesus. And it seems to me we are ramped up and with anger and hostility towards a broken world. That's never our call in the gospel. That's never the message of Jesus to be so ramped up that we're just constantly pointing a finger of judgment at a sinful world. Uh, Jesus, he, he went to the brothels. He ate with the, the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. He was constantly reaching out and building relationships with, with those that may not have believed what he believed or had the lifestyle that he had, yet he saw himself as repairing this world that he was a part of. So what's happening today is Christian nationalism is taking over the American church in many, many quarters And it's become, I believe, the new gospel. It's divisive. It's unchristian. And so many of my Christian pastor friends have moved into the political realm. And their pulpits are no longer used to preach the good news of salvation. Their pulpits are used as a bully pulpit to preach against uh, the sin of America. And uh, there's a book I read several years ago. It was by Dean Merrill, who at the time was... Uh, I think he was vice president at Focus in the Family. And he wrote this book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church. And at the time, I was using my pulpit as a bully pulpit, as a pastor. And when I read that book, it really changed my whole perspective of salvation and what I was called to do as a pastor. And I set aside the bully pulpit and um, began to pray every Sunday for our president, who at the time... Uh, we didn't agree with, I didn't agree with his, his policies, but we prayed for he and his wife and his children uh, every, every Sunday morning. People would come up and say, why are you praying for him? He's such an evil man. And I said, what are you talking about? We're, we're called in the scripture to pray for kings and all those in authority. And they would oftentimes disagree with me. And, and Peter wrote that in Peter, 1 Peter 2.17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. When did Peter write this? And this is in this book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church. He wrote it during the time of Nero, uh, a, a, a terrible a terrible man who would take Christians, pour oil on them, hang them on crosses, 
to light his gardens at night. He was having an incestual relationship with his own mother. And along comes Peter, who's a man of faith, a man of the gospel. And Peter says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Uh, Paul said this, pray for kings and all those in authority. I, I recently saw a YouTube video. It was a Christian nationalist organization called Reawaken America. They were in a, a mega church in, in, uh, in uh, Texas, uh, I think San Antonio. And there was three to 4,000 people in uh, the rally. And the leader of this organization was stirring up the crowd against the president of the United States. And you've all heard the, the phrase, let's go, Brandon. It, it has uh, a very bad connotation, what it really means. And so he held out his mac microphone and he had 4,000 people shouting against the president, let's go, Brandon. And I said to myself, how does that fit with 1 Peter 2.17, honor the king, fear God, love the brotherhood, honor all men. So here we are dishonoring a leader of our country going against what the scripture says. Another man at a conservative Christian nationalist rally said, we've all heard the phrase, turn the other cheek. But we've done that for way too long, and it's time now that we strike back at those we disagree with. And the entire crowd uh, clapped in applause for rejecting the scriptures and rejecting the message of Jesus to turn the other cheek. And if you have an enemy, feed him. You don't curse the enemy. And uh, there's a pastor, his name is David Platt. You've probably heard of him. And he's just written a new book, Don't Hold Back, Leaving Behind the American Gospel to Follow Jesus. And when we come back to the break, I want to read you an excerpt from, from his book. He just was interviewed by the Christian Post on Monday, July 3rd, 2023. And when we come back from the break, we're going to look at, at David Platt's uh, quote from, from uh, his new book, uh, which is entitled, Don't Hold Back, Leaving Behind the American Gospel to Follow Jesus. So when I read, read this article, I said to myself, this is exactly what I've been thinking. Thank you, David Platt, for encouraging me uh, that there are other Christians out there that are thinking and, and saying the same thing, that we're in danger of falling into a whole new gospel. So when we come back from the break, we'll look at what David Platt has to say. See you on the other side. Hi, I'm Aaron Free, President of Israel Team Advocates. And there's an alarming decline today in the support of Israel among U.S. evangelical millennials ages 18 to 29. A May 2021 survey administered by the Barna Group shows that between 2018 and 2021, favorable support for Israel has been cut in half from 75% to 35% among evangelical millennials in the United States. If this trend continues, evangelicalism will be anti-Israel in just a few short years. And remember that young Christians today will be the leaders of tomorrow. Israel team recently conducted interviews with students at a major evangelical university concerning their understanding of the Holocaust. The answers were troubling. To the first question, what was the Holocaust? Half of the students did not know. 
To the second question, who was Adolf Hitler, again, only half of the students had knowledge enough to connect him to the Jewish genocide. In the remaining questions, we found a surprising, breathtaking, really, lack of historical understanding of the murder of six million Jews during the Holocaust. This example is indicative of a much larger problem. The study of the Holocaust is not prioritized in Christian primary, secondary, and higher education. And there's so much more that we can do. You can help Israel Team today by going to israelteam.org and clicking the donate button and your tax-deductible gift today will help us in pushing back against this growing narrative of anti-Israelism within the evangelical millennial community. So go to israelteam.org and stand with us today. We're building a bridge for the coming generation, and it's so important that we build that bridge. So help us today at israelteam.org. That's israelteam.org. This is Israel and You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Hey, welcome back to Israel and You. And we're talking about what is happening within evangelicalism. It seems that we're ramped up with anger against a world that we disagree with. And I'm going to read some excerpts from, from this article, the Christian Post, Monday, July 3rd, 2023. It says this, Over the last five years, David Platt, pastor of McLean Bible Church near Washington, D.C., began noticing a disturbing trend in the church. Instead of being eager to unite around Jesus, the body of Christ was becoming increasingly quick to divide over what he refers to as the idolatry of personal and political convictions. It was out of this growing concern for the American church that Platt, an author of three New York Times bestsellers, penned his latest book, Don't Hold Back, Leaving Behind the American Gospel to Follow Jesus. In it, he warns that the American Gospel, an ideology, he says, prostitutes Jesus using Jesus for the sake of comfort and power and politics and prosperity in the world for the true gospel. The ramifications of this, he said, are deadly. If we're not careful, we can conflate the gospel with American ideals and values and power and politics and in the process lose the way of jesus platt told the christian post what he's called us to to is so much bigger than what we are tempted to get caught up with in this world and particularly my country with the pursuit of comfort and power and politics and prosperity here i'm not saying politics aren't important and i'm not saying all comfort is all bad he clarified But I'm saying we've been called to follow one who beckons us to die to ourselves in this world and to live for one another, uh, for another world altogether, not to live for a country that one day, like all other countries, is going to fall and to live for a kingdom that's going to last forever. And that changes the way we live here. According to Platt, fractures within the church, particularly regarding racial issues, have existed for a long time. But recent years have seen these tensions come to the surface due to political and cultural turmoil, he said, expressing hope that this moment will be used as an opportunity to address and rectify the racial divisions that have plagued the church for centuries. How can we experience the multi-ethnic beauty of the church? How can we make sure we're seeking God not as a means to an end, but as the end, he asked? How can we be intentional about showing counterculture compassion in the world and doing justice 
justice in a world of injustice. A November 2022 study, and again, this is in the article in the Christian Post from Barna, found that less than one-third of pastors, 30%, report often speaking on unity between people of different political beliefs. Only 23% of Christians report hearing this. Furthermore, 28% of Christians report hearing their pastors speak on unity between congregates and people of other religious beliefs, yet only 12% of pastors say this is true. And so there's this divisiveness, I think, that is happening within American Christianity today, a divisiveness that I don't think is is holy or right or true. And my greatest fear is Christianity is becoming a reactionary movement. Uh, pastors know the trigger points. If you make a statement against a certain group or a certain group's agenda, you'll get a standing ovation oftentimes in church today because you're striking out and, and the congregation is thinking to themselves, this guy's right on. I mean, he's, he's fighting uh, for truth. And so the pastor stands up and makes a judgment call against a certain group. It triggers the congregation to applaud. Uh, but say our call is to feed the poor and love our enemies, to do good to those who despise us, to pray for those who despitefully use us, to pray for our president, even if we don't agree with him. Will you get a standing ovation? I doubt it. You'll, you'll hear the sound of crickets within a congregation. And so this is very concerning, but because what we should be applauding for, if a pastor says, it is our role to be salt and light in this generation, to love our neighbors as ourselves, even if we disagree, and to reach out to our community and help those in need, whatever their agendas are, whatever their ideologies are, we are to lay our lives down and die to ourselves for this generation. So right now, the American church in many quarters is like a tinderbox. And when it is ignited, when the tipping point comes, and I believe there's a tipping point that's going to come, I fear that American Christianity will fully embrace tyranny and Christian nationalism over the centuries has always embraced tyranny. And there's a historical precedent for this. In Nazi Germany, there was a tyrannical leader. And uh, the propaganda was saying that German Christians are under threat of Judeo-Bolshevism. They feared that the, the communism of Russia, who they said was led by Marx and Lenin, both of Jewish descent, and a Jewish banking system was going to uh, implode the Christian movement within Germany. So Christians listened to this propaganda from church pulpits year after year after year, probably 20 to 30 years prior to the rise of the tyrant Hitler. So by the time he came along, he gave them what they were asking for. He gave the church what they were pleading for. There was an us and them mentality and so Hitler had a group of willing executioners ready to do his bid bidding, and they developed an annihilationist ideology, willfully and gleefully. Do you know that the authors of The Final Solution, for the most part, they were all baptized Christians, either Catholic or Protestant, and they had come to the decision that it, it's the best thing, it's the most humane thing, and they, they called it humane annihilation. It's the most humane thing for us to put to death six million Jews. These were baptized Christians. Two of the guys that wrote the final solution, 
to murder all the Jews that they could possibly murder in, in Europe. Uh, two of them were medical doctors. Think about that. And so the, the final solution had the full support of both the Catholic and the Protestant churches. Many pastors in that time became Nazis themselves. And so in the entire occupied territory, there was 300 million um, people that lived within Europe during that time, 300 million. How many rescuers were there, like Corey Tenboom? How many set aside the indifference toward their Jewish brothers and sisters and hid Jews and protected Jews? Only 30,000 rescuers. But there's no record of any uh, denomination, any church congregation, except one in Le Chambon, Sierra Leone, uh, France in the mountains. It was a French Huguenot church that saved 5,000 uh, Jews from annihilations. So Christians were Germans first and Christians second. And when faced with the choice of supporting tyranny or the fear of Judeo-Bolshevism, the choice was clear for the German Christians. They chose to support Hitler, uh, the, the tyrant. And that is how nations have crumbled over the centuries. And in the end, six million Jews were put to death. <clears throat> and this is a little known fact. We, we hear about the six million Jewish people, men, women, and children. One million of the six million were children. Uh, but the Nazis didn't just put six million Jews to death. They put another six million homosexuals, gypsies, the infirmed, midgets, the disabled, they were also gassed to death or shot. And so it, the, the entire nation, the sophisticated nation of Germany, which was mainly baptized Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, they came to the point with so much uh, viral towards <clears throat> people they did not like, the other people that were uh, different than them, homosexuals, gypsies, the infirmed, and the disabled, that they thought, you know what, for us to have a thousand-year Reich, for, for Christianity to survive within Germany, we have to put to death all these people <clears throat> that we disagree with. So it was indifference that led all of these people to, many of them were involved, their hands were stained with blood themselves, but most Christians were just indifferent to the whole issue of uh, the murder of 12 million people within their country. And so 30,000 people out of 300 million is 000.1% uh, of the population that stood up and showed courage to do something in order to defend the helpless and people like Corey Tenboom. And so today we, we need people like Corey Tenboom in this generation, people that will be thinking people that when tyranny arises, that we can see it for what it is and not be blindsided. And, and the only way that we as Christians uh, can embrace the true gospel is to read the scripture and find out what the true gospel actually says rather than the political tea leaves and the political propaganda that's being fomented within church pulpits today all across America against uh, this generation, people that we don't agree with, people that we would say, well, they're sinners, so we, we can you know, show anger towards them. So I pray, and I ask you to pray with me in these days, that the church does not succumb to what... Um, 
Pastor Platt calls an idolatry of politics and power. So we'll see you next time on Israel and You. Thank you for listening to this message.